It's good to see everybody here this morning. I know that uh, this time of the year we have lots of folks who are out of town and traveling and on vacation, and we want to wish them all the, the safety and, and uh, ask them to hurry back and be with us. But we do have visitors with us as well, and we're certainly glad for that. Certainly glad that, uh, that you are here. Just want to make this, sometimes when, I, when I'm on the bus with the kids and I want to make an announcement and I, and I want to make sure that they're understanding, I, I'll tell them I want to see everybody's eyeballs. I want to see everybody's eyeballs. Wednesday night services are on Tuesday night this week. So everybody's eyeballs were up here. Everybody heard that. So if you show up Wednesday night, it's not our fault. All right. So anyway. Tuesday night, be here. Uh, Joe Terrell's going to have a, where is Joe Terrell? There he is over there. That's your Sunday night spot. That's your Sunday morning spot. Okay. Uh, he's going to have a good lesson for us, so we want to uh, be here for that. We have been studying the book of Hebrews. We started a study of the book of Hebrews. We looked at it, and we understand that it is a book of encouragement. It is encouraging those readers who are on the verge of, of giving up, many of them, who because of persecution, because of turmoil in their lives, because of whatever may be going on, they, they were getting to the point where they was just like, it's just not worth it anymore. Or it was just, you know, I, I'm not as comfortable with this as I was with my Jewish way of life. So I'm going to go back to what was comfortable. And the writer is encouraging them not to give up. And he's encouraging them to encourage each other. And so our theme verses come out of chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, where he says, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. For we come to share in Christ, if we hold firmly to the end, the confidence that we had at first. And so that is our goal, is one, to be encouraged, but two, to encourage one another. And we've looked at, as we started this study, that he begins by saying, you know, the prophets spoke to us. God spoke to us through the prophets, and that was important, and that was good. But now he has spoken through his son. How much more superior is that? He goes on to talk about how that angels are, angels are great. Angels do great things. But they're nothing compared to Jesus. Jesus is superior to the angels. And then he gives us that warning about not drifting or neglecting the salvation that we have. And then last week we looked at that passage that talked about how that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. And how that he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Isn't that amazing? You want to be encouraged to keep on. You want to be encouraged to to continue in your faith. The fact that Jesus is not ashamed. And if you want to go to the positive of that, Jesus is proud to call you his brother, to call you his sister. Remember, and this leads us to our passage that we're talking about today in chapter 2, 14 through 18, and also in chapter 4, 14 through 16. And these are some of the most theological difficult, theologically difficult and debated, yet at the same time, I think the most impactful verses maybe in all of the Bible. 
concerning Jesus and our relationship to him. It leads to that question, and we've asked this question before. Could Jesus have sinned? And if I took a vote, we're not going to do that. But it's interesting, a few weeks ago, not very long ago, in the uh, high school class, maybe it was high school and junior high combined, I don't remember, but I asked that question. And I said, could Jesus have sinned? And I said, we're going to take a vote. And I don't know if it's because... I'm sure, actually, it's because the teenagers listen so well. And they have heard me speak on this before, and they know kind of where I'm coming from. But I started with, the, we said, we're going to take a vote. Those who believe that Jesus could not have sinned, raise their hand. One person raised their hand. I'll tell you who it was. She's not here. In fact, she's thousands of miles away. It was Deborah White. So then I said, well, how many of you believe Jesus could have sinned? And they all raised their hand. And so I said, Deborah, make your case. And she made a splendid case. Jesus is God. God is perfect. God cannot sin. Is there anything wrong with what Deborah said? Not a thing. Not a thing. However, there's another side to the story. In Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, it says, Since the children have flesh and blood... Go ahead, Jansen. Since the children have flesh and blood... He too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power over death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Adam, Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. And then to chapter 4 and 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy, And find grace to help us in our time of need. Now remember, the people to whom this letter is being written. If you are discouraged, if you are facing trials, if you are facing tribulation, if you're facing persecution, if you're facing disappointment, if you're facing all these different things in your life... What is going to be perhaps of the most encouragement to you? It's going to be somebody who can say, I have been there. 
I have been where you have been. I have faced what you have faced. And I was able to overcome it. Let me help you. Let me offer you an example. Let me offer you advice. Let me give you help in your difficult time. And so we see these verses. I go back again to John chapter 1 and verse 1 and then verse 14. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. The technical theological big word for that is called the incarnation. I like that word, the incarnation. And the reason I like that word is that little, that second syllable kind of thing there, the carne. Those of you who know foreign languages, most of the rest of the Latin-based foreign languages, the word for meat is carne. I go to the Mexican restaurant, my father-in-law too. We like to order the carne asada because I want me some meat. You vegetarians, I don't know about y'all. I am carnivorous. The in, and, and so when I teach the kids or even y'all, you know, incarnation, woo, what does that mean? It means the enfleshment. The enfleshment of God. God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That is difficult to understand, isn't it? That is difficult to grasp. And you know what? It was difficult from the very beginning. Very early on in the church, one of the biggest controversies, the biggest debate was over this whole thing. There were Christians called docetists. That's kind of a weird word. But that means seem. They were called seemist. And they believed that Jesus was not really human. He just seemed to be human. He just was a was, was more like what we would call a ghost. Or, or what do we call those things now? A hologram. A hologram. They didn't even know about holograms back then. But he, he wasn't real. When he walked along the sand. He didn't leave footprints. Ruins that poem, doesn't it, by the way, about the footprints in the stand? Okay. He didn't get hungry. He didn't really eat. He didn't do any of these kinds of things. He only seemed to be a man. And then there were these early people called Gnostics. And their whole premise was is that deity and humanity cannot mix. It's impossible. So it was not possible. That Jesus was all human. And that Jesus was all man. And Paul was dealing with early versions of this in the book of Colossians. That the adults are studying now on Sunday morning. And that's why Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 19. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity. All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. To those people that would have been what? That's just not possible. Paul says not only is it possible, it's the truth. Now, before we make light of these people, before we kind of thumb our nose at them and think, you know, how ridiculous of them, 
It's not possible. It's not possible from a human standpoint. And we've talked about this before. I can be 50% one thing and 50% another thing. You can fill up a, a, a drum, 50% oil and 50% water, right? It's not going to mix, but it's 50 50. Well, we get that, okay? I can be 100% one thing and 100% another thing if those two things are not contradictory, right? I can be 100% a husband and 100% a father, right? Absolutely, because those two things do not conflict with each other, contradict each other. But humanly speaking, in our little pea brains, you cannot be 100% of two things that are at conflict with each other. Despite what... Well, never mind. 100% God and 100% man I could buy 50% God and 50% man. That would, that would fit real nicely, wouldn't it? That would just be so nice and neat. But that's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible clearly tells us that Jesus was 100% deity and 100% humanity. And I can't deal with that. I can't. I can't explain it to you. I can't understand it myself, but I tell you what, I believe it. I believe it because that's what the Bible says. I tell you what, I will explain the incarnation to you when you fully and adequately explain to me the Trinity. Okay? Oh, you can give me little hints and you can give me, you know, God, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. They're, they're, they're three, but they're one. And they, yeah, I get on. No, but I mean really explain it to me. When you really do that, then I'll explain the other to you. But I believe in the Trinity. I believe in God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. And I believe that Jesus was 100% God and he was 100% man. But it's Bible-based. But why? So that's the theological thing. You know, well, the Bible says he was both, period. That, that's, that's the end of the discussion. You may want to discuss some more, but that's the end of it. I'm done. But why? Why did Jesus have to become flesh and blood like his brothers? Why did the... Did the word become flesh? Why did all the fullness of the deity dwell in bodily form? And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. First of all, he did it to destroy the devil, it says. Romans 6 and verse 23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. I believe both physical and spiritual. Jesus or God said to Adam and Eve in the garden, the day you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. And as soon as they ate of that fruit, they died spiritually and they began to die physically. And all physical death is related to the consequence of sin. May not be directly related, 
but is related to the consequence of sin in the world. And because of that, and because that prior to Jesus, there was no real salvation offered. There was no real atonement, atonement offered for sin. Man lived in fear and dread of death. Who don't want to die? Don't want to die because I'm dying in my sins. In fact, Paul and other writers use that expression that we are without Christ dead in our sins, in our transgressions. But Jesus, through his perfect life, through his sacrifice, through his resurrection from the dead, broke the power of both physical death and spiritual death. Ah, I'm dead spiritually. But because of what Jesus did, I can be alive spiritually. I'm going to die physically one of these days, unless I'm here when Jesus comes back. But no longer does death hold the power of fear over me. Because of Christ, we actually look at, we should, we actually should look at death as a freedom, as a releasing. How many times did we hear Norman say that death was the ultimate healing provided by God? Yeah, there's no more fear of death. Why? Because Jesus conquered death. Conquered it as a man. Conquered it in human flesh and was raised from the dead. So we have the promise of being raised from the dead as well. Now, does Satan still have the power to destroy? Yes, he does. He still has the power to destroy, but now the remedy has been provided. The anecdote, antidote is available. Salvation is possible. He still has the power to destroy But in a very real sense, that power now is only granted to him by us. If we choose to let him destroy. Because Jesus provided, or Jesus destroyed the power of Satan. Second reason Jesus became flesh and blood like his brothers was to make atonement for sins. Jesus had to be tempted like we are. Like we are for his sacrifice to be real and meaningful. Hang with me. If he could not sin, then his status as the perfect sacrifice is a little hollow, isn't it? It's a little not genuine. If the fix was in, If there was no way that Jesus could sin, if somehow his deity protected him from sinning, then how is his sacrifice sufficient to cover the sins of all the people? If he couldn't have. You know, it's kind of like for years and years in Cuba... We might say, well, it's a communist country. They don't have free elections. You know what they would say in Cuba? Yes, we do. We have free elections. 
There may only be one person on the ballot. But we got free elections. Well, is that really a free election? No. The fix is in. Well, and there's no way Jesus could sin if there was no way that he could, could uh, 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 be tempted enough to sin. Then how can he really be the perfect sacrifice? How could he really be the spotless lamb? I said that, you know, if he had some kind of a, a force field button, then I, I'll take the temptation for a little while. Uh-oh, it's beginning to get a little too great. Uh-oh, oh, it's getting a little too strong. Whoop, whoop, force field, temptation gone. Whew. All right, didn't sin. And that makes it hard for him to be a legitimate sacrifice and atonement for sin. That's why I believe the writer said he suffered when he was tempted. And then again in chapter 4, he was tempted in every way like we are. It kind of reminds me a little bit. And I could see this conversation going on. You remember the book of Job, the very beginning. We have that scene. God is there and the angels are coming and, and, and Satan comes and God says, what you've been doing? He's been out, I've been here and there. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? He's a righteous man. And Satan says, yeah, because you give him everything. The fix is in. And God says, okay. I believe in Job. Take what you want. And isn't there a sense in which had Jesus been unable to sin that Satan would say, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, that doesn't count. That doesn't count. That ain't right. That ain't right. You put this hedge around him. We believe, do we not? We believe that Jesus got hungry. And uh, let me back up. Forget I said that. Make it go on. Disregard, jury, the last statement. The conflict comes because we believe that sinning is contrary to godness, right? Contrary to deity. Contrary to God's nature. And so we believe that the possibility of sinning cannot be possible with Jesus because he was God. Right? But we don't have a problem, most of us, with believing that Jesus got hungry. We don't have a problem in believing that Jesus got thirsty. We don't have a problem believing that Jesus got tired. Are those attributes of godness? Are those attributes of deity? No, they're not. They're not. God doesn't get tired. God doesn't get hungry. God doesn't get thirsty. But Jesus did because he was flesh and blood like you and me. Now, if we believe Jesus can get thirsty, we believe Jesus can get hungry, we believe Jesus could get tired. Then why can we not also believe that he could have sinned? But he didn't. And that made him the perfect sacrifice. Thirdly, 
He became flesh and blood in order to help us. You know, in Greek and Roman mythology, the gods would come down off of Mount Olympus every now and then. But generally for two reasons. One, either to punish man for something that they'd done or to just mess with them. To just create havoc among men, you know? They're bored up on Mount Olympus and the people are having too good of a time. So we're going to go down and we're going to mess with them a little bit. But God became man in order to help us. Now, again, many of you know where I'm going with this because we've done this on several occasions. Is it possible for you or me to be perfect? The answer is yes. I can prove it theoretically, and I can prove it anecdotally. I don't know if that's the right word, but it sounded right, and most of you would know, so anyway, we'll go anecdotally. I can prove it theoretically. Remember, we've done this before. I come to the very first temptation in my life. I can either choose to do right or choose to do wrong. Correct? I choose to do right. I come to the second temptation in my life. I can either choose to do right or choose to do wrong. I choose to do right. I come to the third temptation in my life. I can choose to do right. I can choose to do wrong. I choose to do right. Now, we don't have enough stage for me to continue on for 56 years worth of temptations. But you get the theoretical point, right? Every temptation that comes up in our lives, we have a chance. We have the opportunity, the choice to choose right. Now, if I were to ask you, I flip a coin. A, a, a legitimate coin, not something trick or fake or whatever. I flip a coin and 99 times in a row, it comes up heads. What are the chances that when I flip it again, it comes up heads? 50-50. Now, you want to know what the chance is of flipping a coin a hundred times and it coming up heads? By my best calculation, it is one plus 30 zeros. So 30 zeros to one. That's the probability that you can flip a coin a hundred times and get heads every time. But on any given flip, the possibility is 50-50. That's the same with sin, with us. Is it possible? Sure. Is it possible to flip a coin a hundred times and get head a hundred times? Sure. One and 30 zeros to one, but it's possible. 
But I also know that it's possible anecdotally because Jesus did it. And Jesus did it as a man. Jesus did it as flesh and blood. Jesus did it just like you and I. He did it every time. Every time a choice came up to sin or not sin, he chose not to sin. Every time a choice between right or wrong came up, he always chose right. Not because he was God. But in spite of being man, he did it. And that means when God tells us, be perfect, be holy, just like I am holy. We can't say, that's impossible. Can't do that. God comes along and says, yes, you can. You can because at every turn in your life, you can choose to do right if you want to. Not easy, but you can do it. And yes, you can because a trailblazer, a pioneer has gone before you and he has done it. Otherwise, God's call for us to be holy would be hollow also. Well, I can't do that. Sure, Jesus did it, but, you know, he had special powers. He had to, you know, but you can't expect me to do it. I don't have that. God says, you're right. You don't have that. But I still expect you to do it because he did it and he didn't have that either. When he was going through those things. He is there to help us. He is there to be our example. And he sympathizes. He understands. Jesus was tempted. Have you ever thought about. You know when we think of Jesus being tempted. We mainly think of two times. Basically. Right after he's baptized. He goes into the desert. And he was tempted to turn the stone to bread. To bow before Satan. And to jump off the the temple or the high place and then that's the beginning of his ministry then we skip to the end and we see him in the garden of Gethsemane where we see him agonizing over what's about to happen father if it's possible if there's any other way let this cup pass from me And it's almost as if we get the idea that from that moment in the desert to the moment in the garden, Jesus really didn't face temptation like you and I do. Are you kidding me? He did. You think that he was not ever tempted by pride and arrogance? Wow. Being the son of God? Why not turn the stone to bread? Because in that moment, it would have been a matter of pride and arrogance. At one point, don't you just, if you're Jesus, don't you just, you know, you're battling with the Pharisees and all these people. At one point, just, just, just one small bolt of lightning. Just cook a few of them. We sing that song, he could have called 10,000 angels. You think he was never tempted with pride or arrogance? You think he was never tempted with inappropriate anger? We see that he got angry. But you think he was never tempted with inappropriate anger? 
You think he was never tempted with bitterness? Never tempted with hate? Never tempted with revenge? Never tempted with greed? Well, maybe a little hard for him, you know, he's, but maybe. Ever tempted with lust? Women all around him all the time? Well, we, don't, we don't want to think about that. We don't want to think about Jesus being tempted. He was tempted in all ways. Like you and me. Yet, here's the key. Without sin. Fourthly, he became like us to become the great high priest. All of this makes him the perfect high priest. Under the old law, there was this disconnect. We talked about it before, really between God and the people. Between God and Israel. And so that's why on one day out of the year, on the day of atonement, you remember that in the temple and the tabernacle there was a holy place where the showbread was kept and all that. And then there was this curtain. And then there was the most holy place. The ark was kept in there. Nobody got to go in there. Nobody. That was considered the seat of God in there. Nobody got to go in there except the high priest one day a year. And it was called the Day of Atonement. But before the priest could do any of all the ceremonies that was involved in the Day of Atonement, before he could do anything, he had to make sacrifice and atonement for his own sins. Kill an animal, he had to sprinkle blood everywhere, he had to do all of this stuff in order to make atonement for his own sins so that then he could go and meet and make atonement for the sins of the people. That's the high priest. But we have a great high priest who didn't need anybody to make atonement for his sins. And he is the sacrifice for all of our sin. And because he has reconciled through his blood man to God. We don't have to wait around till one time a year. And wait for one person to go to God. We have a high priest who is God. And who is man. And bridges that gap perfectly. And has become our perfect, merciful, and faithful high priest. Enthroned in heaven, pleading our cause. Caring for us. The great arbitrator, our great advocate, our great high priest. Writer says Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. But more than that, he became just like us. Took on flesh and blood. When we are weak, discouraged, tempted, persecution, we have a brother who has shown us the way and understands us in our time of need. Thank God. Thank God for Jesus and for the fact that he became like us so that in the end we can become, as we said last week, like him. 
If you're here this morning in some way that we can help or encourage you, we invite you to come now as we stand and as we sing. We hope by listening to this lesson, you have found a better understanding of the Bible. And through that better understanding, find a closer relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our living Savior. If you have any questions or desire more information, please feel free to contact us here at the Dangerfield, Texas Church of Christ. You can find us at dfield.org. That's D-F-I-E-L-D-C-O-C dot O-R-G. Or you can email at dfieldcoc779 at aol.com. Or you can call us at 903-645-2896. If you are local to the Dangerfield area, we would love an opportunity to meet you and encourage you in person at 818 West W.M. Watson Boulevard, Dangerfield, Texas. 75638. Our meeting times are Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. for Bible class and 10.30 a.m. for worship service, Sunday evening at 6 p.m. for worship service, and Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m. for our midweek Bible class. Grace and peace be with you always.